Hey, good to be back. I was out last week, kind of uh, being a little cautious because of an exposure, so I'm super psyched to be here with you guys. We've had to switch things up because of that, and so if you were here with us last week, you know that we jumped ahead into the beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, and, and so we were doing things a little out of order, but we are now going to be back in uh, chapter 2, checking in on the passage that we skipped over. We read last week about how much Paul had missed the Thessalonians. They were, he called them, his glory and his joy. And he missed being with them. So he eventually sent Timothy back to visit with the church in Thessalonica to encourage them, but also to get a report about how they were doing. And and these guys loved Jesus, and so they were doing well, standing in the faith. But this morning, as we look in uh, chapter 2, Verses 13 to 16, we're going to read about the power of God's Word, how the Word of God was at work in their lives, why they were so strong in the faith. We're going to see this morning how these Christians have received the Word of God, accepted it, how it's caused them to imitate the strong faith of others who have suffered, and and Paul, we're going to see, is standing against those who would oppose the gospel. So with that, we're going to jump right in this morning and and read a few verses, 1 Thessalonians 2 Beginning in verse 13, page 986, we do have Bibles available in the back. Would love, love for you to have that in front of you as we uh, unpack this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll read together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for your people. We thank you for our Savior Jesus that reconciled us back to you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our hearts, that brings us life. And we thank you now for your word that does work in our lives, that does transform. And we pray and we ask now that your spirit would speak through your word, that you would convict, encourage, challenge, and remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. Be present among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, But as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Amen. So Paul again begins thanking God. Thanking God for his work in the lives of these believers. How they received the word of God. That they heard it. Nine different times in the first two chapters of Thessalonians. Paul's going to refer to either the word or the gospel. The word of God. The gospel of God. He's using these terms interchangeably. The Word of God is the Gospel of God in this context. They're the same message, right? This good news, that's what Gospel means. This good news that God's great love and God's grace has been brought to humanity. This this great plan that God has to deliver humanity from sin and death to bring them into Himself, into His kingdom, into His glory. This is the Gospel. This is the Word that Paul And Silas and Timothy preached. The word of God is the gospel of God. Peter would write this in 1 Peter chapter 1 to his authors, excuse me, to his readers. 
Peter says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel which was proclaimed to you. So particularly in Thessalonians, when Paul's talking about the word and the gospel, he's talking about that central message that brings us life. And he says to his readers, look, when you heard it, when you received it, you accepted it and you followed it. As one commentator said, they didn't just hear it. It was an obedient hearing. They heard the call. They heard the word of God and they followed. And Paul says to them, you welcomed and accepted our words, not merely as human Words, not the words of, of men, not some message of wisdom that we came up with, but you received it for what it really is. It really is the Word of God. See, the people where Paul and Silas traveled from town to town, they weren't impressed with Paul and Silas. They weren't wowed because they were such great speakers and thought, well, we ought to follow those guys. Paul says, in fact, in other places that he wasn't actually that great of a public speaker. They were impacted by the message because when they heard it, they knew God was speaking to them. As Paul would write elsewhere in, in Galatians, in chapter 1 of the book of, of Galatians, he would say this, for, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And again and again, Paul would maintain through his defense of the gospel in the Old Testament scriptures, through the testimony of the resurrection, through the revelation that he personally had had as an apostle of Jesus Christ, this was not man's gospel, this was the word of God. And I've heard some of you say, you know, after a retreat or after a sermon or after a, a study, you know, some of you have said, man, it was like the Holy Spirit was just speaking right to me, speaking right to me about my specific needs. Yeah, that, that's not me. I, I wasn't reading your emails this week. If you get struck today, that's the Word of God. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Testifying. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. Now look, some people accept the Christian message, believe the Christian message, follow it to some extent, but they don't believe it's the Word of God. Some people, you could say, accept the Christian message, but sort of as the Word of men. Right? And people that think this way think, well, well, yeah, it's good wisdom, but, but I sort of have the liberty to pick and choose what I want to adhere to, what makes sense to me, what I like, what works for me. And, and many Christians have convinced themselves that, that the Christian message is, is, is merely just good human wisdom. It's good advice for living. It's worthwhile, but it's no, not the divine word of God. But sadly, when you call yourself a Christian and you live this way, if you don't trust the word of God for what it really is, You become your ultimate authority. It loses its power. You're ultimately not giving yourself fully to God and to Christ. And and yeah, there's good bits and pieces of of good, helpful human wisdom, but, but that's not what it is. It's the Word of God. This is divine revelation. As the Holy Spirit stirred human authors to write His Word. Now, some of you are asking a a really good question. I want to encourage you to ask it, and I'm going to ask it now if you haven't been asking it. How do we know? How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? How do we know that the Gospel is the Word of God, right? Because I was raised with it? Because I say it? Because it's the most, you know, 
common way to think, maybe still for a little while here in the United States. Look, I want to give you five ways that I think we can have the confidence and the assurance of knowing that the Bible, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the word of God. First of all, it's consistent. The word of God is consistent. The message has internal logical consistency. Right? The message does not contradict itself. The claims that the Word of God makes about creation, humanity, God's nature, the problem of sin, the means of salvation are logically consistent. Right? Just basic. If you, if you want to believe something, it, it should be consistent. Secondly, I believe the Word of God is accurate. Here's what I mean by that. It reveals a true state of affairs about the condition of our heart and the condition of our world. See, the Word of God offers what I believe is a remarkably informative and insightful explanation of reality. Something that be can, can confirmed based on our experience of reality. It explains with unparalleled depth and insight the spiritual nature of our existence. We do have a spiritual nature. We can observe that. The Bible tells us about the internal longings that that all humanity has and gives us an explanation for that talks about the existence of a good and powerful god outside of ourselves that we can observe it's an accurate description of the world around it it describes with both beauty describes the, the the beauty and the design of creation but the bible also talks about the plague of evil that has impacted creation The Word of God reveals both the dignity and the exalted nature of my own life as well as the infection of sin that has poisoned me personally. And so we can read the Word of God and think, that's accurate. This is what I've experienced externally in the world and internally in my own heart. But thirdly, the Word of God is unique. Now now follow this for a minute. Every religion, every philosophy, every worldview agrees on at least one thing, maybe only one thing. But everybody agrees something's not right. Right? There's no philosophy out there, there's no religion out there that says everything's great, exactly, just do, do nothing, because everything's how it should be. We all agree that there's something wrong, something broken in our world, but every religion, worldview philosophy, ultimately puts the onus on humans to overcome their understanding of the sin and evil in the world. Take, take for example, atheistic humanism. The idea that there is no God and humanity needs to solve its own problems. Ultimately, That kind of atheistic, secular humanism would say, we just need to use reason, science, we need to use hard work to better ourselves, to overcome the evils of the world. What about pantheism, the idea that everything is divine? Buddhism, the New Age movement, they would say, look, all things are divine, and humans need to just find the God within themselves. And if we could just work to bring out our own divine nature, we could achieve peace and unity in a hurting world. What what about the traditionally monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam? They would say, yes, God is loving, God is merciful, but in order to reach Him, we need to dedicate ourselves to His rules. We need to faithfully practice His religion. We need to prove ourselves worthy of God. Do, Do you see the similarity in all of these perspectives? They're ultimately saying, there's something wrong in the world, there's something wrong in you, and it's up to you to fix it. It's up to you to overcome it. But the Christian gospel is unique in admitting that there is nothing we can do to overcome the tragic condition in our own hearts or to reach God. 
Personal salvation, even global redemption, only comes through the sovereign grace of God. And that is a uniquely Christian gospel-centered message. Life comes, life now and eternal life comes, not because of what we can do to reach God, but because of what God has done to reach down to us. How do we know that the word of God is true? I think its uniqueness validates it. Thirdly, the word of God is verified. Verified in a number of ways. Salvation in the work of Christ fulfills all the expectations of the Old Testament scriptures. All the Old Testament scriptures verify the Christian gospel. I think, I think the church, the history of the church verifies the word of God. Despite many, many failures, the gospel has been affirmed and validated by the life of, of Christians and the history of the church living out its message. Ultimately, the gospel of God and the word of God is verified by Jesus himself. Jesus who rose from the dead, who empowered his apostles to write Holy Scripture, to teach the gospel. Those who who witnessed the resurrection, who gave up their lives for resurrection. There have been many, many martyrs of many different types of religions. But only the apostles gave up their life for something that, if it wasn't true, they would have known was a lie. But they had seen the resurrected Christ. See, ultimately, verification of the gospel message rises and falls on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says as much. If the resurrection has not happened, we are to be pitied. The gospel is not true. But the resurrection and the testimony of Jesus and his apostles verify the word of God. And, And lastly, most importantly, the Bible and the gospel is verified for you personally in this room. If you believe in Christ, if you trust the word of God, if you believe it is not merely human wisdom... It's verified by what we can call the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit confirms in your heart that God is speaking to you. The old Westminster Confession of Faith says this, that the inward work of the Holy Spirit bears witness by and with the Word in our hearts. How do we know it's the Word of God? Because it's been verified. By the Old Testament, by the church, by Jesus Himself, and ultimately by the by the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. But 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 fifthly and lastly, I, I would say that the, we can know that the Bible is the Word of God because it's effective. First of all, it's effective because the life that that Christianity calls you to live—a life of sacrifice, a life of selflessness and service, a life of humility and integrity, a life of concern and love for others—this is a life that is personally meaningful and is a socially wise way to live. It's an effective way to live on planet Earth. As a lifestyle, as a worldview, Christianity works. But secondly, the gospel, the gospel at its core works. Because listen, the gospel claims that through faith in Jesus, you can find forgiveness. You can find meaning and hope. Not just as a, as a lifestyle that sort of socially works and is culturally beneficial, which it is. But you can find forgiveness, meaning and hope. And, and that is, is demonstrable. Many of us can testify that the only way we've been able to effectively overcome personal sin and, and turmoil is through faith in the gospel. It has transformed us. The word of God is consistent and accurate. It is unique. It's verified. It's effective. And the only question I think remains is, do you believe that? Are you willing to trust that? Will you trust in this word? Will you trust in this Savior? 
And not just stand on the outside and think, well, it's got some good things to offer. Or not just to say, you know, my, my parents hold on to this. Or not just to say, well, I don't know if I believe or don't believe. I'm too busy, but I'll just kind of play along because it, it's the path of least resistance. Will you trust and put your hope and put your faith in the scriptures and in the Savior who wrote the scriptures? As we read in verse 13, the Christian message really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Other translations say there, it works effectively in those who believe. The word of God works in our lives. How does, how does it work? How does God's word and his gospel work in us? It convicts us of sin. You say, well, I don't like that part of it. I know, but it's a necessary part of it. We need to be convicted where we're not seeking the Lord. The word of God stirs us to faith. As we read it, it stirs us. It transforms our hearts. The gospel message preached through the word of God stirs us to faith. It transforms our hearts from darkness to light, from desperation to hope. The Word of God brings us into God's kingdom. It guides our lives with Him. Chris and I were just praying this morning in, in prayer meeting before church. I, I, I could list off the top of my head ten, ten things going on in, in, in your lives, in the life of the church, in this season of in and out of COVID, transition still there, ministry difficulties. I mean, the elders... We, uh, zero chance of figuring out how to be faithful, how to lead us as a church forward apart from God's word. It leads us. It guides our lives. It upholds us in the way of God. The word of God brings us hope in the midst of desperate times. I cannot tell you how many times I've said in, in recent months to people that are desperate, that are feeling weak and broken and hopeless and grieving and say, just spend a little time in the word. That the truth of, of God bring you hope in desperate times. One commentator said that once received, this word of God becomes an active power. If you receive it, it becomes an active power operating continually in the believer's life, bringing a change in behavior and a constant fruitfulness. Friends, are you looking to the word of God? Are you feasting on the word of God? Don't just eat once a week. Okay, we're not snakes. We can't just eat once a week. You have to eat every day. You have to come here on Sunday morning and feast on the Word of God. And you have to, to, to nibble tomorrow morning. And, and you have to remind yourself of the truth of God's Word. Because distraction and, and, and deception is all around us. But here we find truth. Romans 1.16 that says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, there's power here for you to live your life. If you feel weak, if you feel hurting, if you feel hopeless, confused, look to the word. It's living and active. Hebrews chapter 4. Read along with me. Hebrews chapter 4 says the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What does that mean? It means the word of God cuts us open. Reveals our hearts before God. And brings life to us. Many of you know how powerfully the word works in the lives of believers because you've experienced it. You've seen it in others. Some of you have not. It just seems like a dead old book of confusing stories. But the word of God does work. And you can ask the person sitting next to you, have you, have you ever experienced that? You can read it 
this afternoon and you can say, Holy Spirit, if this really is your word, will you speak to me? You can listen to the testimony of, of, of saints that have been transformed by the word of God. I think of Ray Topper and how the gospel and God's word powerfully worked in his life. Many of you know that our dear friend Ray passed away just over two weeks ago. Ray was, was born and raised as a committed Roman Catholic and as a, as a, a quiet, committed Roman Catholic, in 1978, he was sitting and he turned on his TV and an old preacher by the name of Billy Graham came on. And, and Ray was, a, was a, the beginning of his third major bout with depression, one in which he didn't know if he would survive. And as he heard this old preacher teach the scriptures, proclaim the gospel, Ray shared with me, that it was like God was speaking directly to him. His heart was stabbed, he said, and, and he said in that moment, he said, yes, yes, I will follow the Lord. And for the next 43 years that Ray lived, he followed the Lord. And he told me that that moment when he heard the gospel and he gave his life to Christ, that his depression was undeniably and supernaturally immediately lifted. Now, I know not all of you have experienced that, but, but, but let the testimony of this brother encourage you. Immediately lifted. And for the next 43 years, as I said, Ray lived with a hunger to know God, to worship God, to study the Word. And, and Ray was a quiet, unassuming guy. But he loved his wife, he loved his three daughters, and God carried him. Gave him peace and joy in life. Did you know that for the last 25 years, Ray battled with something called neuropathy? Pain and numbness in his hands and in his feet. That's why he walked with a cane. Because he was constantly dealing with numbness and, and pain in his extremities. But, but all the while, he hung on, to, hung on to the Lord. He spent hours, he would spend hours reading the Word of God, praying, listening to worship music. Um, I mean, if, if, you, if you talk to Ray for more than 15 minutes, he was liable to, to mention a contemporary worship song, which for Ray was something from the 70s or the 80s. And he loved and he hung on to the Lord. But more than just knowing the Word of God and loving the Word of God, he loved his Savior. He, Ray would talk to Jesus like you talk to a friend. But it was not until five years ago, and his daughter had started going to an evangelical church, and he started listening to, to those sermons online, and he began to think to himself, maybe I should find a church like this in my community. And it was not until five years ago, after listening to, to that pastor online that he decided it was time for him to move on from the Roman Catholic Church. And he told me just a few days before he died how grateful he was to have found Living Hope Church. At the end of his life, to be in a place where Jesus was exalted, where, where the Word of God is, is treasured and studied, where we love one another in community. And I remember evenings where he would spend in my home, sitting in the rocking chair in the corner in our small group, and we would study the, the word, and, and, and as I've, I've said already, and you guys know, Ray, Ray, was, Ray was quiet. But, but he would, you know, enough people had spoken, he would, he would then find a, a spot and he would share his wisdom. And you know, if Ray Topper was going to say something, you better shut up and listen. And he would stir us to faith and bring insight from the word of God. And in the last few weeks, even as he processed the sudden cancer diagnosis that shocked all of us, Ray Topper faced death with courage and with peace. And he told me he was ready. He was ready to step from this life into eternal life. He was confident in the promises of God's word and he knew that he was going to be with his savior Jesus and he was ready. He was he was excited to go see his Lord. 
How does the Word of God work in the lives of believers? It transforms, it saves, it heals. The Word of God works effectively. We read in chapter 1 about how the testimony of the Thessalonians, how their faith rang out, and Ray Topper had a faith that, that rang out, that, that continues to ring out as the work was done in his life. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God transformed. I pray that that encourages you. I pray that that reminds you and gives you hope to, to soak and sit and read and feast on the Word of God. Friends, it's true. Believe it. Paul can see it at work in the lives of the Thessalonians. What does he say in verse 14? For you have imitated the churches of God in Judea. For, because I can see the word works in your life, because you are standing firm in the midst of suffering. He saw the outcome of the, of the, the word's work in their lives. How did they imitate the Judean Christians? Well, some of you know, as we've talked about before, in, in Judea, the Christians there were facing opposition. They were being persecuted by their fellow Jews because they believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And the Jewish leaders believed that this new Christian sect was heresy. And they said, if you claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that's blasphemy. If you're inviting Gentiles to worship alongside of you, you're, you're endangering us from losing our identity, losing our way of life. And the growing Christian movement was a threat to the Jewish leaders' control of the people. Verse 15 says that these were the same opponents that had crucified Jesus and had him killed by the Romans. These were the same opponents that had killed the prophets of old. The same ones, in fact, that had driven out Paul and Silas. Jesus, in his ministry, calls out these ruthless, jealous, power-hungry, selfish leaders. Jesus had called them out. He said, you're just like the descendants before you that persecuted the prophets. And now in verse 14, we, we see that the Thessalonians are facing similar opposition, not by Jewish leaders, but by their own countrymen. See, both Jews and Gentiles hated and opposed the gospel. But the point of verse 14 is not that they were suffering, but that they were imitating the Jewish Christians that had suffered by standing in faith. They were responding to affliction with peace and, and faith and even joy. See, they were imitating even Paul and Silas and Timothy. Again, you remember this verse in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, where, where Paul writes and says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much, much affliction with joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word in the midst of affliction and persecution, not with reluctance or hesitation or, or, or with like halfway, but sort of hiding it. No, they received it with joy. And Paul sees the word of God at work in their lives because of how they live and stand in the midst of affliction. Now, some have thought and some may think, well, look, if I'm going to believe in Christ, if I'm truly adopted into God's family, well, then he'll protect me. Right. I shouldn't expect more suffering or more hardship because now I belong to God. And, I, and I've seen men and women hold to that view and I've seen them tragically fall away when hardship or difficulty comes. See, quite the opposite is the case. When we come into God's kingdom through faith in Jesus, we are now at odds with the kingdom of the world. And so there's tension. There's tension now between our reality and our hope and the reality and hope of the world. In fact, Christians should expect suffering. Both because we still live in a fallen world and because we've aligned ourselves with Christ. 
And, and, and thankfully, mercifully, many of us have not ever experienced external persecution through attacks of, of government or, 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 or business or, or friends or family. But you have and most certainly will face internal persecution. See, as, as the spiritual attacks of Satan come into our lives, that too is persecution. Internally, what many Christians experience externally. Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, now we often can't identify with that. We can maybe identify with internal attacks, but, but the ex- external attacks that we read about here, that we hear about in other parts of the world, it's foreign to us that we would suffer or be persecuted for our faith. But, but I, I thought about our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. When the Taliban fell 20 years ago, the Christian community in Afghanistan actually began to grow. And and missiologists estimate about 10 to 12,000 Afghani Christians. And even before the Taliban took over Afghanistan again weeks ago, the Christians there had enough sense to, to realize they were preparing for the worst. They saw the writing on the wall even before it hit the Western news cycle. And with the Taliban beginning to, to take over, they prepared for the worst. And, and Christianity technically had been legal for the last 20 years in Afghanistan. Although they still faced all sorts of informal threats and, and, and afflictions from their countrymen. But fears began to grow, and reports have now confirmed the worst, that Christians have been targeted in Afghanistan for violence, their property confiscated, they've been arrested, executed, women particularly abducted, put into sex slavery. Horrible, horrible, unspeakable things. Many Christians in Afghanistan have fled the cities, they've turned off their cell phones so they can't be tracked, and and some of them, even at this moment, are living in hiding. And yet the voice of the martyrs reports that many Christians are remaining faithful. Many leaders continue to lead secret house churches, continue to spread the gospel in the midst of, of violent persecution. Something happened in the days leading up to the, the final Taliban takeover, something that actually began reportedly back in 2019. Apparently in Afghanistan you have a national ID card and on it states your religion. Now again, I said it was, it was technically legal to be a Christian, And so going back a couple of years ago, there were certain leaders and courageous Christians that said, you know what, we're going to change our national religious identification to Christian. We're going to have it put on our ID card. Apparently some Christian leaders made that decision mere days before the Taliban takeover. And here's what they said. They said, rather than us just be killed someday and disappear with no witness... We're prepared to make a sacrifice for our children and our grandchildren. So that if the day comes that we are martyred, there will be a witness. That we were killed because we are Christians. And Lord willing, by His grace, that will have an impact. And maybe one day, they said, maybe one day our, our, our Afghan children and grandchildren will be able to openly call themselves followers of Jesus. They willingly took that step of faith. And again, this is a type of persecution and oppression that is unthinkable for, for most of us. If I think about it too much, it turns my stomach. But two things, and this is what the Afghan community have asked of us, have asked of you. Pray for them. Pray for their courage. Pray for God's mercy. Pray for their safety. 
Pray for them to stand strong in the midst of persecution. Pray, pray that their, their, their oppressors might even receive mercy. That they would be protected. But secondly, can these stories of courageous faith that are now ringing out around the world, can they stir us? Can they stir us that we too could humbly lean on God, courageously lean on God, that we could have the strength to imitate their faith in situations that, that aren't even really warrant, don't even really warrant being called imitation. But yet, can we stand in boldness? Can we stand in courage? Can we walk in obedience? Can we have that kind of steadfast faith? Can we be strengthened in the midst of whatever suffering you're facing? And maybe for you, it's not minor suffering. Whatever hardship or adversity that is in your life right now. Just as the Thessalonians imitated the the faith of, of the Jewish brothers and sisters that were experiencing hardship, can we imitate the faith of our Afghani and Iranian and other Brothers and sisters in the Muslim world that, that hold on to Jesus. Can that stir us? That, that's one ind- indication, one evidence. Paul says that the word of God is at work in your life. That you will hold on and be a person of peace and joy and hope and wisdom and courage and faith. Even in the midst of adversity. May God help us. See the word of God when it's at work in our lives means that not only can we suffer with an unwavering faith. But as we see in verses 15 and 16, Paul shows us that, that it means at times we have to identify the opponents of the gospel and we have to resist them. Paul says in verse 15 that those who oppose God in this way, that are the, the proponents of this kind of persecution, they are standing against the word of God. They are standing against the gospel of God. And he says they displease God. Okay, which is maybe one of the, the, the more obvious statements in Scripture. Yes, of course, people that persecute Christians are displeasing God, right? They're standing against God and His purposes. But he goes on to say, not only are they displeasing God, they're opposing, and he says, all mankind. Their actions are hostile to humanity. Why? Because they're preventing the spread of the gospel that is the only hope for humanity. Paul says in verse 16 that the Jewish leaders that were hindering Paul and Silas from speaking the gospel are trying to prevent the Gentiles from being saved. Standing in the way of them hearing the message of Christ. I think he may have in mind here some of the background again that we read about in Acts 17. Because you remember in Thessalonica the Jewish leaders had raised up a mob in the city had had accused Paul and Silas and the other Christians of insurrection against Rome, had forced them to be taken before the, the city council, and, and Paul and Silas were forced to, to flee the city. They go 50 miles southwest to Berea, and we already talked about how they get to Berea, and Paul and Silas don't just take a vacation. They say, okay, well now we got a new place to preach. They began proclaiming the gospel in a new city. People come to Christ, and guess what happens? The, the opponents of the gospel in Thessalonica, they hear that now there's revival in Berea, and so they go down there, and they do the same thing, and they try to undermine again in another city, undermine the gospel message. And undermine the ministry of, of Paul and Silas. This is what he has in mind when he says they're trying to prevent the Gentiles from being saved. And, and again, they are just walking in the corruption of their fathers and grandfathers. Because sadly, for generations, the corrupt leaders of Israel had abandoned their faith. They were not seeking the Lord with their heart. 
They were operating from a place of pride and greed, not teaching people the truth, but they were killing the prophets that God had sent. They were not waiting for the Messiah. And when the Messiah finally did show up, they too had him executed. And when his followers continued to preach the gospel, they chased them down, they arrested them, and they killed them too. This is what Paul means, friends, when he makes this hard statement in verse 16, that these opponents are filling up the full measure of sin. They're piling high their sins. Paul says, don't you understand what they've been doing for generations? Sinning to the fullest measure of what a person can do. And Paul, in this harsh statement of verse 16, is really echoing the words of our Savior Jesus. You go back and look at Matthew 23. Jesus is there railing against the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And he says they're walking in the footsteps of their ancestors who killed the prophets. And Jesus says to the corrupt leaders in his day, go ahead and fill up the measure of your ancestors' sins. And Paul's just echoing him there. And so because of these actions, because of their life that displeases God, that hinders the gospel, Paul says in 16 that the just wrath of God has overtaken them at last. Overtaken them completely, forever. Now remember, in chapter 1 we read that Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath to come. And so if these folks are denying Jesus, if they're opposing the gospel, if they're teaching people to run away from the Christian gospel, well then, they're not going to be delivered from the wrath to come. Paul speaks there in verse 16 about the future coming judgment of God at the end of the age with the certainty of a past action. He says that the wrath has come on these opponents of Christ. See, because defiance and hostility toward the first coming of Christ means that a person will face judgment at the second coming of Christ. Now, there's always hope for for repentance, and we see that in the life of Paul. But for those who continue in rebellion, Paul says that, that, that just wrath is a certainty. Now, what's interesting is that if you take a step back and, and you look at Paul's words here in 15 and 16, you realize, wait a minute, he has unique perspective into this. Because he was an opponent of the gospel. He stood on the other side of Christ doing exactly what he's rebuking these corrupt Jewish leaders for doing. He had been an opponent. Paul would say that that he was a blasphemer of Christ. He was a persecutor of the church. He was an opponent of the gospel. But God in his great, abundant, never-ending mercy delivered Paul from the wrath to come. Paul had become a Christian. He had been saved from his sin, saved from the devil, saved from God's wrath, saved from death. See, God's mercy is unstoppable. And now Paul was facing his own persecution. He was now on the other side, facing the same persecution he had brought to other Christians. And so he's speaking with unique perspective, saying, don't you realize the great offense, the great hostility that you have towards God? And don't you realize the great danger that you're putting yourself in? Guys, listen, here's what I want you to see in verses 15 and 16. Who are the people that most displease God? Paul says that these opponents are displeasing God. Who who is it? Is is it the thieves of the world? Are they the ones that are at the top of God's list that hurt him the most? Is it the people that are sexually immoral? And you can check whatever sexual immorality box is, is at the top of your list. Are those the people that displease God the most? Maybe it's the rebellious people. Maybe it's the people that are really greedy. Maybe it's the addicts. How could they do that? No. 
Those that most displease God, the, the biggest threat to God and his kingdom and his purposes are those that openly and actively oppose the gospel. Those that are leading others away from Christ and their false teaching. See, Jesus himself and the New Testament authors reserve their harshest condemnation. Not for people caught in sin. Not for people struggling. Not for people wrestling with unbelief. Not with people who have, who have become enslaved to broken patterns of the world. But they reserve their harshest condemnation for false teachers. For those that are leading others into sin, away from Christ, into unbelief. And even today, even today, those that, that most hinder the gospel are not the ones struggling with faith. And not your neighbors and friends and co-workers that have turned to the, the despicable things of the world because they think maybe those things will give them hope. It's those that are actively and publicly undermining Christianity. Those are the greatest opponents. Those are the ones that are the, the, the biggest tools, you may say, of our enemy Satan. And so we walk with humility and compassion towards those that are in the grip of, of sin, that are still turned away from God. I, I think about a man in the church who was telling me about his, his adult children, some of his children walking with Christ, but he told me about his one particular son that had fallen away, and he said, I loved my son no less, I welcomed him no less. He was in our home. We served him. We, we loved him and his children. He said, but the day came when I overheard him in my home at a family gathering, undermining the faith of one of his siblings. He was actively seeking to, to undermine, belittle the Christian faith of, of one of my other children. And, he, and that father told me, he said, I stood up to him. He said, look, you will always be my son. You are free to believe whatever you want. You are always welcome in my home, but you will not undermine Christ in my home to my family. And you will not speak that way to your siblings in my home. See guys, we have to identify and we have to stand against those who hinder the gospel. And we don't do it belligerently. We don't do it without compassion. We must contend for the truth of Christ with hope, even against the most severest opponents of Christ. Because even the most severest opponent of Christ is still eligible for God's mercy. Is still within reach of God's grace. Paul says this to Timothy about how we stand against opponents. 2 Timothy 2.24 He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so let's stand in courage and, and without compromise, but let's stand in hope, eager to speak the gospel of grace, eager to see God grant repentance even to the most vile and the most obstinate opponent of Christ. Guys, listen. This word of God that we've given our lives to, it works. It's effective. It's powerful. It works in our lives, in the lives of believers. But I, I can, I, we can talk about that sort of objectively, universally, but as we wrap up and prepare to sing again, the question is, is the grace of God at work in you? Is the word of God at work in you? Is the spirit of God at work in your life today? Have you accepted the Bible for what it really is? The very word of God Speaking to your heart. God's truth. Is the word of God strengthening you, empowering you, guiding you? Are you looking to it on a daily basis to feed your soul?
One of the ways you know that is because you imitate the faith of others who have suffered. When you face affliction, you stand in peace and joy. When you face hardship, you stand in unwavering faith. When you face loved ones that are hurting beyond your ability to even conceive of, when you see the world crumbling around you, has the Word of God strengthened you to stand in faith? To imitate our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters throughout history that have given their lives for Christ. And we are now being asked not to give up our life for Christ, but to live your life for Christ. And will the Word of God stir you to courage and to gentleness and humility to stand against those who oppose the gospel? Not in a harsh, belligerent, unforgiving way, but in a way that stands in faith, that speaks truth, that speaks the truth of Christ into the darkness with gentleness and always with the hope of God's mercy and grace. Amen? As the worship team comes, why don't you stand with me as we pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your good gifts are not always easy, that your word is not always smooth. And sometimes we gotta, we got to chew it long and hard before we can swallow. But God, we thank you that your word always nourishes. And I pray, God, today that your word has and will nourish us. That, that the word of God would work powerfully and effectively in our lives like a double-edged sword. God, cut us open. Speak to us, challenge us, encourage us. Pull our eyes and our hearts away from the distractions of the world. Pull our minds and our hearts away from doubt, discouragement, away from the, the wisdom of the world that at times seems to appeal to us. Center us fully and finally on Christ. Root us in the foundation of Jesus, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the foundation of our brothers and sisters throughout history that have stood for Christ, that died for Christ, more than that, lived for Christ. God, we come humbly as broken people in need of your grace. Do your work in our hearts even now as we rest on the foundation of Jesus and his word. Hear our worship, hear our cry.